Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the Dublin Festival of History 2022, historian Fergus Whelan will discuss the life of writer, philosopher and advocate of women's rights Mary Wollstonecraft, her impact on the life of Margaret King of 15 Henrietta Street and the links that bound the two women even after Wollstonecraft's untimely death. This talk is a collaboration between 14 Henrietta Street and Napibri Ellen. This episode was recorded at Napibri Ellen, 15 Henrietta Street, Dublin, on the 6th of October 2022. Hi friends, just before um, Fergus Whelan, I want to welcome everyone along to this event. This is the 10th year, somehow, of the Dublin Festival of History. Uh, we were so rudely interrupted there, we had two years on Zoom. But we are back uh, in, in real life and it's been a landmark year, of course, being the 10th anniversary uh, and we've gone into new venues. Simultaneously tonight there are talks in the Peabody Illin and the Croke Park Museum. They're both new venues for us. So we felt it was important uh, to bring the festival to new places. There are more than 130 events all over Dublin and importantly to us, uh, they're all free. And That's always been the ethos uh, of the festival. Uh, this year it was really noticeable to me that the first talks to book out uh, all concerned women. Kathleen Clark, the first female Lord Mayor of Dublin. This was her 50th anniversary. Uh, we had a talk on her in City Hall. Sarah Cecilia Harrison, brilliant artist, uh, suffragette, and Dublin's first female councillor in the Mansion House. And now, I suppose those women were committed feminists. Uh, the mother of feminism is honoured in the programme too, Mary Wollstonecraft. And this is a brilliant story, a great connection between her uh, and this street, which has such a broad and brilliant revolutionary uh, history. I first encountered Fergus Whelan uh, several years ago, giving a talk with the most intriguing title I've ever seen for a public history talk in Dublin, The King Killers of Pill Lane. <laughs> so I have to find out what's that, what, what that's all about. Uh, and since then, it's been great to read three magnificent books on political radicalism uh, in the late 18th century. Descent into Treason, which wasn't just a good book, it was an important book, on the ideology and the origins of Irish republicanism. Uh, a biography of Archibald Hamilton Rowan, and I see there are copies of that here. I'd pick one up on the way home if I don't have one. And uh, a brilliant, brilliant biography of William Drennan. So he's well-versed in radicalism uh, in the late 18th century. And some of the names that pop up in those books, names like Thomas Paine, might pop up tonight as well. So it's a great honour to have Fergus Whelan in the programme for the festival. Tommy Harvey Bueto, the Pibriel and Conanacho, Corafaldo, and Ocacho. Mary Wilson Croft and her pupil Margaret King, very, very strong connection, not only with the street, they both lived in this house. Margaret King was born in this house in 1772, and Mary Wilson Croft worked in this house for a short time when she worked as Margaret King's uh, 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 governess. Um, some of you might be familiar with this book. Uh, it's the best address in town, Henrietta Street, Dublin, and its first residence, 1720 to uh, 1780, by Melanie Hayes. Beautiful photograph of Alice Hanratty's uh, uh, front door there. I don't think anybody ever gave her any acknowledgements or thanks for that. But anyway, um, the, the, the point, the reason I'm using it here is because it conveys the cover, conveys the sort of people who lived in here in the 18th century. The Right Honourable Thomas Carter, Member of Parliament. Henry Boyle, First Earl of Shannon, a member of the Irish House of Lords. The Right Honourable Luke Gardner. J Judith Barry, the wife of Lord Baron John Maxwell. 
Archbishop Hugh Bolter, Primate of All Ireland. He was the second resident of the street after Luke Gardner, who built uh, the street. He was, he was the Primate of All Ireland of the Anglican Church or the Church of Ireland, and he was very well qualified for that job. He had never set foot in Ireland. He had never anything to do with the Church of Ireland. The qualification he had for the job was uh, he was a friend of George uh, I uh, of, uh, of, of Hanover. Uh, and he got the gig and he came to work for George IV and he did a great job for him because as a political figure in the House of Lords he managed what he called uh, the English interests in, in very much in support of George uh, uh, George IV and the oligarchs who ran Ireland uh, at the time and he did it all from here in Henrietta Street and he had the help of lots of great men who also lived in the street. Lord Chancellors, Earls, Viscounts, Barons, Lord Bishops, Right Honourable Members of the Parliament uh, who resided here, they all thought they all considered themselves great men. They were great men because they had big jobs, they had lots of money and they had uh, 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 noble blood. But in actual fact, one of the greatest people ever to live in this street was Mary Wollstonecraft. She had no money, she had no title. She'd know, uh, know, know all she had uh, was a great mind uh, and great talent, and of course, she'd no um, uh, inherited fortune either. However, her pupil, Margaret King, who she came to teach her, uh, she had a title. She was Lady Mountcastle, and she, had, she inherited a huge fortune, but she walked away from it all because of her democratic principles, her republican principles, and to some extent, for love also. Mary Wollstonecraft was born in Spitalfields in London in 1759. She was the second eldest of a family of seven. Her father was a drunkard who abused his wife and his children. Her mother put up with the abuse and favoured her sons over their daughters. As her father had squandered the family fortune, Mary had to make her way in the world, first as a teacher, then as a governess, and finally as an internationally renowned author. Um, she came to work for the Kingston family in 1786. When she was 27 years old, she was at something of a loose end. She was in mourning for her dear friend, Fanny Blood, who she had nursed on her deathbed the year before. The school that the two women had been running fell into ruin, basically, because when she was mourning her friend, she couldn't attend her teaching duties. So the school closed down. She needed a job. She came to Ireland as a governess to Margaret and Mary King. Margaret and Mary were the daughters of Viscount Kingsborough and his wife Caroline. The Kings were amongst the wealthiest families and extensive landowners in Ireland at this time. The Kings had extensive lands, uh, landed estates in Roscommon and Cork and Tipperary and lots of other places. And the castle there you see in the, in the uh, picture was the main family seat, Mitchellstown Castle uh, uh, in Cork. Um, however, uh, Mary Wilson-Croft came to work with the family. She stayed in Kingston Castle. She didn't like it very much. She was there. She found it a big, lonely, gloomy place. And she moved here then for the rest of that year, the one year she stayed here, to 1560 in Henrietta Street. This house was a little bit bigger than it is now. It was twice the size of what uh, 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 it is now. Part of the house has been lost. Uh, she liked it here mainly because, although she was a servant, the house was big enough that she could have her own apartment 
and she could see her own friends and so on. She didn't have to seek the permission uh, of her employer uh, when she wanted to have uh, uh, visitors and so on. Um, the two girls she came to mind were Margaret and Mary King. Margaret was 15 years old at the time and Mary was six when they first met the new governess. Margaret had been born in Henrietta Street. That on the slide there's a, a typo, it says 1771. It was actually 17, um, 1772. Um, the girls were at first very hostile to Mary Wollstonecraft, but she won them over very quickly, mainly because both girls became very ill. Uh, and uh, their mother, Caroline, had no time for female children. She'd no time for sick children. She'd much more time for her 12 dogs. And Mary Wollstonecraft was disgusted that... Mary Wollstonecraft was disgusted at the way Caroline King neglected the daughters. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft had a lot of experience in terms of nursing the sick. I told you already she'd nursed uh, Fanny Blood on her deathbed. She'd also nursed her own mother through many long years of illness. And she nursed these girls through their illness. And the two girls quite naturally became desperately fond of uh, Mary Wollstonecraft as a result. Um, Margaret was to have a profound impact on Margaret, the older girl, who, who by her late teens had rejected the values of, of her class in favour of Wollstonecraft's advanced ideas on education and women's rights. Um, it was probably inevitable that um, she wasn't going to last in this job. She was always at, at loggerheads with Caroline King, who incidentally was probably that at the time the richest woman in Ireland. To her credit, mostly women didn't inherit the family fortunes. Mostly that went to the men. But Caroline had managed her affairs and to some extent the death of her brother and so on, that she actually was a wealthy woman in her own right. And between herself and her husband, they were, as I say, they were actually some of the biggest landowners in Europe, not just in Ireland. Um, but Sir Margaret was dismissed after one year. She went back to London and she never saw Margaret King again. However, they secretly corresponded up until the time of Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, death. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft returned to London and she returned to an intellectual circle uh, that was based in London under this, the guiding light of the man at the top of this picture, Dr Richard Price, the dissenting clergyman, originally from Wales, but a man who had a, a congregation in... in um, Old Jury uh, in London, uh, in Newington Green in London, sorry. But he was asked to make a speech on the first anniversary, within a year of the French Revolution, but not on the anniversary of the Revolution. They were actually celebrating, a, a group called the Revolution Society uh, were celebrating the glorious revolution of 1688. We're actually celebrating the um, birthday of William of Orange, in fact. Uh, and Price as a renowned dissenting minister, famous preacher, was asked to do the sermon. And the sermon was actually basically welcoming the French Revolution. And it was steering stuff indeed, because this is how we finished. Be encouraged, all ye friends of freedom and writers in its defence. The times are auspicious. Your labours have not been in vain. Behold, kingdoms admonished by you, start, starting from sleep breaking their fetters and claiming justice from their oppressor. Behold the light you have struck after setting America free, reflected to France and there kindled into a blaze that lays despotism in ashes and warms and illuminates Europe. 
very stirring stuff indeed and it was very very went down very very well with the audience but it didn't go very well with the man at the bottom of that picture the man at that bottom of that picture is Irish born Edmund Burke born 150 yards from, uh, from here but by this time Burke is a, a, an English statesman uh, a statesman in England uh, and very much involved in English rather than in Irish politics and he wrote this reflections on the revolution of France, which is a savage attack on Dr. Price and all the people who wished, all the people in England who wished the revolution well. Now remember, this happens very early. There has been no violence, almost no violence in the French Revolution at this time. Burke denounces the French Revolution, but much more importantly, he suggests that anybody who taught the, anybody in England who was publicly prepared to say that the French Revolution, that the overthrow of a, de, uh, of a despot and its replacement by a national assembly of the people, anybody who was prepared to say that was a traitor, was involved in treason and deserved to be crushed. The objective of the, the, the reflections on the Revolution of France was twofold. Uh, Book wanted Britain to go to war to overthrow the French Revolution. He also wanted the British government to clamp down on the likes of Dr. Price and the uh, reformers and the Democrats in England, the people who were seeking for reform of the House of Commons and the introduction of democracy and so on. He wanted that all stopped. And he succeeded on both counts. The war began in 1793 and went on intermittently for 23 years, only ending with the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, um, 18 years after Burke's own death. Um, the prominent Democrats let, let, fled England. I should have said when I um, was doing this slide, not only England. In Scotland, five men were, were arrested for the crime of holding a meeting demanding uh, 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 democratic reform. And they were sent to the penal colonies in Australia for 14 years each. And only one of them ever returned home alive from that experience. The lots of the Democrats, uh, uh, once the war with France began, a lot of the Democrats, such as Tom Paine, Dr. Priestley, and so on, got out of England as quick as they could. Those who weren't quick enough were rounded up, and the British government had a, a program basically to hang thirty of the, the Democrats. Uh, Dr. Price was uh, uh, dead at this time, so he he he, he wasn't uh, he he wasn't uh, affected by it. But the government plans to hang these Democrats fell through because the juries weren't prepared to hang men for holding an opinion. Uh, so they, they didn't get away with hanging any of them, in fact. Um, but the the Bork Payne Woolston top graph debate. Uh, between the rights of man and re re reflections on the revolution of France has often been described as the most important political discussion of the late 18th century. Uh, and Mary Wollstonecraft was right in the centre of it. She was actually the first person to come out with uh, a, a refutation of Bourke, which she called the vindication of the rights of men. Shortly after that, Tom, Thomas Paine comes out with his rights of man. The rights of man is probably better known, and certainly better known to history than Wollstonecraft's book. It was certainly, the rights of man made a huge impression in Ireland, particularly amongst the Presbyterians of Belfast. When, when Theobald Wolfton uh, went to Belfast in 1791, he described Payne's rights of man 
as the as the Quran of Belfast, or as I said, the Quran of Belfast Q. But Mary followed up on her rights and men with her most important book ever. The, the foundation uh, canon, if you like, or foundation book, foundation text uh, of modern feminism, a vindication of the rights of women. Um, but in actual fact, the central message in the rights of women comes from this house, what she saw in this house and the conclusions she drew from the way aristocratic women treat their children on the basis of their education. And this is a quote, right? A handsome aristocratic woman, clearly by the way, Caroline King, who takes her dogs to bed, nurses them with a parade of sensibility when sick, when suffering her babes to grow up crooked in the nursery. A woman who lifts out pretty mixture of French and English nonsense to please the men who flock around her. In this female, the wife, mother, human creature are all swallowed up by the factitious character of an improper education and a selfish vanity of, of be that beauty has produced. Um, she basically went on to say that this thing of keeping girls silly to make them ready for the uh, marriage market where they would be sold with a dowry to some rich person was in actual fact a form of prostitution. You can imagine that went down very, very well with the aristocratic ladies of the day. Uh, and, um, uh, and so, but in fact, it was recognised as having a lot of truth by the Democrats and the reformers. And by this, by the, with the publication of this book, Mary uh, Wilson Croft became very famous and very popular indeed. Uh, her publisher, a man ca called Joseph Johnson, sends her to France to work for his magazine, is it a London-based magazine, to inform the people of England about how the French Revolution uh, is developing. Um, there she associates with a lot of the English uh, radicals who had escaped uh, after, the, uh, after Pitt's uh, clampdown, but she also hung around with a lot of uh, uh, French friends of hers who were Gerondists. I'm not going to go into the, the minute political detail of the, uh, of the French Revolution, but she hung around with a certain set, liberal sect who supported the, the, the French Revolution uh, when, when in Paris. Um, she became romantically involved with an, an American called uh, Gilbert Imlay, with whom she had a daughter in uh, April 1794. She thinks that Imlay is away on business. He's not in Paris very much. And she thinks he's away on business. Where in actual fact he's in the process of abandoning Mary uh, and her baby. Um, when the war reaches a certain pitch uh, between England and France, uh, Robespierre locks up most of the English uh, emigrants in, in Paris, even though the supporters of the French Revolution. For Unfortunately, they weren't supporters of Robespierre's uh, 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 faction. So they ended up uh, uh, being interned. Um, and um, Mary escaped this fate because she went to the American consulate and said she was married to Gilbert Ilmay. That made her an American citizen. So she actually escaped internment. Um, unfortunately, some of her closest French friends, including Mimi Roland, um, went to the guillotine. Roland was the one who made a famous uh, remark, oh, liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name. So Mary, for a while, finds herself, Imlay is gone, 
gallivant. She thinks he's on business. Uh, but she finds herself in Paris with her French friends, either in jail or dead, and her, um, her English friends uh, in prison. But then, to some extent, her looks changes. She becomes very, she's very fortunate to meet this man here, Archibald Hamilton Rowan. Archibald Hamilton Rowan was the most illustrious, if you can use that term, of the United Irishmen. He was the first president of the Dublin Society of the United Irishmen. He was chosen for that role by his fellow United Irishmen because for many, many years he'd been regarded as um, a fighter on behalf of the poor, a fighter on behalf of the downtrodden with a huge reputation amongst the Dublin working class as being a champion uh, of, the, of the lower orders. Um, it's not surprising that when the government here decided to smash the United Irishman, the first target is Archibald Hamilton Rowan. He's, he's, well, he's not exactly the first target, but he's the, they locked up a couple of them for six months, but it was the first one they seriously went after. Uh, and uh, they arrested him in 1792 on a charge of seditious libel. They were afraid to bring him to trial because he was so popular in Dublin that no jury would have convicted him in 1792. What they hoped to do was they hoped to frighten him, to entrap him, to get him to run away from Ireland, and that would, that would have solved their problem if he had to run away. He wouldn't run away. But then, when they started the war with France, they were able to whip up the propaganda and so on. And so they brought, two years later, they brought him to trial, happy that they could get a, a, a packed jury uh, to convict him, which they did. He was sentenced to two years in jail he went for for about a month he stayed in the jail not far from here it's down it's 100 yards from here down in Green Street that's where Newgate Prison was but he didn't stay there very too long he had to escape because he had contact with a, a French agent the British government became aware of and if he didn't escape he was going to the gallows so he did escape and he managed to get to France uh, when he's in France then he uh, meets uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, he wasn't impressed at first because he was on a, He was. It was just after the after the fall of Robespierre. Things are opening up in Paris again. Public meetings are happening. Public parties are happening. And there's a public sort of uh, festival to celebrate the recently dead Mirabeau who had died of uh, uh, natural causes. And Wollstonecraft sees Mary Wollstonecraft with her outer wedlock child and her servant carrying the child behind her. And this is what he said. Now, he would have known her. He, would, he wouldn't have known her. He would have known her writing because the United Irishmen were constantly reprinting Mary Wollstonecraft's stuff in, in, in the Northern Star and so on. And, he, and this is his reaction. What? This is Mary Wollstonecraft parading around with a child at her heels with as little ceremony as if it was a watch you just bought in a jeweler's. So much for the rights of women taught I. So he wasn't impressed. However, and he was a man of liberal religion and radical opinions, but he was surprised, even he was surprised, by Mary's unconventional lifestyle. However, they became very, very close friends, and um, uh, Mary helped Rome to escape from France. When Rome decided he could do no more good for Ireland, decided to go to America, this was no easy thing. Every ship that left the French port would be stopped by the British Navy and everybody on that ship would be uh, would be questioned as to who they were and what their business was. So Rowan had to get a, a passport from the, a, a, under a false name from the American consulate 
uh, and he had to go to the half and wait for a, a captain that was prepared to take a chance on bringing him through the British blockade. Mary Wilson Cross partner, uh, Imlay, had a house in the half. So Mary put that house at Archibald Hampton Rowan's uh, um, disposal until he was able to get away to America. Um, Mary returned to London to discover the truth about Imlay and that he had deserted her and the baby. And she fell into what was obviously some class of a serious depression. Uh, and uh, she actually made two suicide attempts, uh, once jumping off Putney Bridge uh, into the Thames. Um, she writes to Ron in America, she wrote two letters to Ron in America, explaining how unhappy she was and how she'd been let down by Imlay and all the rest of it. But in the second letter, she sort of mentioned that she'd met an interesting man uh, uh, called, well, she'd known him before, but she'd re-met an interesting man called William Godwin. Um, and she fell in love with Godwin. Godwin was a very well-known philosopher, a highly successful author, uh, and a very well-known uh, political radical. Um, when Mary realised, she very quickly got pregnant when she was with uh, uh, Godwin, and she, they decided to marry. And this was an embarrassment, particularly for Godwin. Godwin had written against marriage many, many times, and he, as an institution and so on. So, in actual fact, he, uh, he did, wasn't so much, he, he didn't keep the marriage secret, but he didn't advertise, advertise it uh, either. A lot of people would have saw him as a hypocrite who, who recommended other people should not get married, but he, he married himself. Um, in September, Mary gave birth to uh, Mary Godwin, later Mary Shelley, the author of um, Frankenstein. Um, but boy, within 10 days, Mary was dead. Uh, um, she died, basically died of blood, blood poisoning and never recovered from the, um, from the childbirth. Um, Godwin, yeah. as if to make things worse, very quickly wrote a biography of Mary Wollstonecraft that basically destroyed her reputation for a hundred years. Um, uh, she in, in the early days when she she was renowned uh, in Britain, France, Germany, Scandinavia, where her books have been translated, uh, and the newly independent United States of America, uh, she was the, the literary celebration of her celebrity of her generation. Um, uh, she had her enemies though from the very beginning. The uh, the, the press uh, showed abuse on her and Tory press and loyalist propagandists attacked her and told lies about her, branded her as a whore and all that sort And uh, to some extent, uh, 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 Godwin's memoir played into, uh, played into this. Edmund Burke went out of his way to describe Mariana fellow females uh, as wicked, mischievous, ingenious women who brought, uh, brought her likely to bring ruin and shame on all those who listened to them. He implored mothers to make their very names odious uh, to your children. So this is a sort of a tax she was under throughout her life. But in actual fact, uh, Godwin, by um, uh, going into her, her unorthodox love life and all the rest of it, actually helped, uh, uh, helped the, 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 the Tory propagandists. Now, her, 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 her life, life was unorthodox, but it wasn't particularly promiscuous. She had a child out wedlock. There's only, there's only sort of three people you can identify that she was certainly ever uh, in, uh, uh, in love with in, 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 in a physical sense. 
but it was in the, things like the suicide, things like marriage out of wedlock and so on. Uh, these were seized on by, uh, by the Tory press and they had a field day uh, disguising political antagonism as sexual prudery. Uh, she was branded a whore whose voices follies had brought about her provi- providential ends. Um, and this is a quote, this isn't me, this is a quote from somebody. A fog of censure descended on a, on a reputation that was not to disperse for a century. That uh, rather ugly graphic there is a new statue that was, it was only in, in the last couple of years in Newington Green uh, unveiled to Mary Wollstonecraft. It, nearly, it caused nearly as much controversy uh, as God, uh, Godwin's memoir. For some reason, the artist decided to, um, uh, to represent her as, as naked. There's never, there was never any image that I know of in her lifetime where she was naked. She wasn't even naked when she threw herself, in, she threw herself fully clothed into the Thames, but I suppose that's artistic freedom for you. Um, now, going back to Margaret King, our pupil, Margaret King followed the book Pain Debate, Wilson Tone with great interest and very quickly became an ardent Democrat and a Republican. But remember, this debate takes place in 1791, 1792. By early 1791, Mary, Margaret King has already married the Countess uh, uh, Mount Cashel and she becomes Countess M. Uh, she stayed in that marriage, although it wasn't a particularly happy one. She stayed in that marriage for uh, um, 14 years and had eight children. She said afterwards in a later life that she was very naive when she got married. She said that she thought she could change him, but she, uh, she, she reckoned that many, many women have got married under that, uh, under that false pretense. She wasn't the only one who ever made that mistake. Um, however, I mentioned the treason trials where the, when after the pit broke clamped down on the Democrats, they tried to hang these guys for treason. The first four people they brought up, um, she had, they were tried in London, and the Countess turns up to the trials. And that causes quite a stir in the English press. You can imagine the English society is very divided between the aristocrats and the democrats. Here is an arist- a, a democrat on trial for treason, and the Countess is sitting in the body of the court hoping to see justice done. This is the guy we're talking about, Thomas Hardy, a shoemaker. He's tried for treason in 1794. The great E.P. Thompson in his classic work, The Making of the English Working Class, describes the organisation. The organisation that um, the organisation that he founded was, uh, that Hardy founded was the London Corresponding Society. Uh, E.P. Thompson describes that as the first working class party in history. He was in, he was in jail, charged with treason. A Tory mob attacked his house and his wife, his pregnant wife, died uh, at the scene uh, of that attack. Uh, Margaret attended his trial and afterwards, in an attempt to sort of help him out, she um, commissioned a pair of shields from him. Unfortunately, there was a mistake. He thought she wanted a pair, of, because she was a countess, she wanted a pair of aristocratic shoes, so we made her a pair of fancy shoes, but that's not what she, she wanted, a pair of democratic shoes, but in fairness to her, he made her a, 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 a second pair free. Um, <laughs> Margaret comes back to Ireland and she joins the United Irish Society. When this organisation is set up first, it's called the Society of United Irish Men. But in 1794, when it's put underground, it becomes the United Irish Society, or just the Society. Uh, And several women uh, uh, become members. Eleanor Bond, the wife of Oliver Bond, 
one. Margaret Nugent, a, a, later a friend of, a one-time friend of Percy Shelley, uh, and uh, Margaret King. But it was easy for Margaret King to get in touch with the Society of United Irishmen because her first cousin, she was the first cousin of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, the commander-in-chief of the, um, of the, the United Irish Army. He had set the 23rd of May for the rising to take place all over Ireland to get 300,000 uh, United Irish members ready to rise uh, uh, at a signal. In the run-up to that, he's been hunted around the south side of the city and one of the people who shields him uh, and hides him is Margaret King. Uh, Margaret King hid him out for a while in Ivy House, our, our home in Stephen's Green, Ivy House, which is now the Department of Foreign Affairs. Later, uh, she moves to Myra House, which is in Usher's Island. I was in Usher's Island. I'm not sure whether it's still there. don't think it is. It's there in my imagination, but I'm not sure it's there in the, in the, in the streetscape. But um, she's... Um, Margaret King is nursing Pamela, the daughter of Philip Egalite. Lord Edward Fitzgerald had come back to Dublin a few, the, the January before, with his young French wife, Pamela. But at this stage, Pamela is sick and pregnant, and Margaret King is nursing them as the hunt goes on for Lord Edward. Unfortunately, Lord Edward is captured. This is one of the graphic descriptions of his capture in, in, in Thomas Street a couple of days before the rising is due to take place. He killed one of his uh, assailants, Swan, but he's badly wounded in the shoulder and he dies in agony in Newgate Prison uh, because they, they, don't, they don't treat his wound uh, and he, he dies in agony uh, uh, a couple of days later. When Margaret heard the news of the arrest, um, she didn't tell Pamela. She reckoned that Pamela was too ill uh, and she couldn't take it that the shock uh, would worsen her condition. Um, in, 19, in, 19, in 1800, William Godwin, Mary, the widower of Mary Wollstonecroft, comes to Dublin as a, a guest of John Philpott Curran and meets any of the uh, revolutionaries who have managed to uh, survive the cataclysm of 98, including uh, William Drennan. Um, but... Godwin was very taken with, uh, with Margaret King, and this is how he described her. He described her as a Democrat and a Republican all, in all their sternness, yet with no ordinary portion of either understanding or good nature. Now, by this stage, um, Godwin had decided that his, his career... He'd, he'd remarried, actually, and he decided that his career was... Himself and his new wife uh, were going to um, organise a publishing business that would publish children's stories. They wanted to change the way young, pe young people were educated. They wanted them to read and so on. And they knew that wouldn't happen unless they, um, unless they started to produce material that could appeal to the imagination of young children. As it turned out, probably the most successful author that uh, Godwin ever had was Mary King when she eventually started to write children's stories for him. Um, in the 18th century, particularly before the war with France, the aristocrats would spend, they loved to go on their, their grand tour. They would go all over the capitals of Europe, meeting people like themselves, having a great time, spending all the money that they took off the Irish peasantry and having a good old time all together. And, uh, and unfortunately, they couldn't, do it when, um, they couldn't do it when the war was on. 
But there was a brief window uh, in 1801 when there was a ceasefire. And uh, Mount Cashel, Lord Mount and his wife, the Countess, took off uh, on their grand tour around Europe. Uh, and the, um, the Count, he, he played it exactly the way you would expect him. He spent his time going to balls and meeting sort of people like himself and spending time with the sort of the crowned heads of Europe who had survived the Napoleonic thing uh, and so on. And she, she went along with him. Now, she enjoyed herself too. There's a lot, we have a lot of uh, accounts of her. She had, she had one young woman with her who kept the dirty. They, they seemed to have a great old time when they were on the grand tour. But um, she also took the opportunity to meet uh, exiled radicals such as Tom Paine, Robert Emmett. She met Robert Emmett, was very impressed by Robert Emmett. But Robert Emmett is executed two years after, she, she, or uh, three years after she meets him. She met Theobald Wolfe Tone's uh, widow, Matilda Tone. At this stage, Matilda Tone is destitute. She has two children and no means of support. Um, Margaret King, along with Lord Moira, solved that problem. Lord Moira had uh, uh, stood for one of Tone's children as his godfather. But uh, Tone's uh, children and widow were rescued from destitution uh, by uh, Margaret King. Um, She met, although she was with her husband allegedly, she met a Wicklow man called George Toy, an Irish Democrat, and she fell in love with him and she left her husband. And more correctly, her husband took the kids and came back to Ireland and left her on the continent uh, behind him. she couldn't call herself Countess Mount Cashel anymore, and she couldn't call herself uh, Toy because she uh, wasn't married to him. She was still married to the Count, so she changed her name to Miss Mason. Miss Mason was a character, a heroic character in one of Mary Wollstonecraft's books. So she's still she's still sort of enamoured, hugely enamoured with Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, I told you already, she then starts to write children's stories for Godwin, which become highly su- so successful that her children's stories, which she got, by the way, from an old man called Daniel when she was in Mitchellstown in Cork. She had a lot of stories she got from him. But uh, she, uh, these were so popular in England that they went to 14 editions uh, uh, and they were still being published 40 years after her death. Um, another thing she did was when Percy Shelley... And Mary Shelley, or Mary Godwin, uh, eloped. She gave them shelter in uh, in Pisa, in his, our home in Pisa in Italy. And uh, Shelley was very, very taken with her and uh, wrote um, a poem in her honour. Uh, just one line of it, I quote, A lady, the wonder of her kind, whose form was upborne by a lovely mind. Um, here's the thing, now there's two versions of this story. There's no doubt about it that Mary King became one of the best most famous doctors and men in Europe. Uh, Mary Shelley's half-sister says that she did this by that she took Mary Wollstonecraft's advice. Mary Wollstonecraft always said that women should train as doctors. Those the women were the carers and so on. Well, according to Claire Claremont, um, uh, Mrs. Mason dressed as a man and went to the medical school in Siena and qualified as a doctor. She certainly published several books, medical books, popular medical books, in several different languages, because she was uh, also uh, um, a linguist. Um, now, 
coming up, you'll be glad to hear him coming towards the end. Um, Marcus Slitton's sister Mary was involved in a great scandal of the age that rocked boats, uh, England and Ireland. Uh, in 1798, or sorry, 1798, 11 years after Wilson Croft had parted company, and one year after Wilson Croft's death, 18 year old Mary. Now remember, um, Wilson Croft hadn't seen Mary till she was set, since she was seven, you know, but 18 year old Mary fell in love with her, her cousin, a Captain Fitzgerald, a married man, 10 years her senior. When she realised she was pregnant, the couple eloped and Lord Kingston threatened and then murdered the captain. Uh, Kingston stood trial in the Irish House of Lords but was, was acquitted. The Tory press concluded that Mary went in the bad because as a child she had been exposed to um, uh, the ideas of the notorious Mary Wollstonecraft. Now, just one last thing. Margaret King had a brother, one year our senior, who later became the Earl of Kingston. Her brother was called George, sometimes known as Big George. Big George was a founder member of the Orange Order. He was a leader of the um, North Cork Militia. He invented probably the most cruel torture that's ever been invented by anybody. He invented the pitch cap. His great, his great uh, contribution to uh, humanity was the pitch cap was a rag stuck with pitch uh, put on a man's head sometimes turpentine, sometimes um, sometimes uh, uh, gunpowder was used and set a light and the poor man would run around uh, in agony giving great sport uh, uh, to his torturers. Um, you'd be glad to hear that he died roaring. Uh, he, he died literally roaring, a, a roaring madman in, in an asylum uh, in London. But let's not finish up a night like this talking about a fellow like that. Rather, just let, remind ourselves of the two great women who for a short time were together in this house, Mary Wilson-Croft and Margaret King. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. This festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with the Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Instagram. <laughs>